Breaking the Glass Slipper, we believe it is important to have conversations about women and issues of intersectional feminism within science fiction, fantasy and horror. To continue to do so, we need your help. Please consider supporting us on Patreon. Join the conversation by following us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Megan Lee. I'm Lucy Hounsom. And I'm Charlotte Bond. Some of our favourite heroes are characters who might be deemed less than heroic by society. Smugglers, reckless hotheads, gamblers and gangsters. Everything that law and order should squash at the earliest opportunity. Yet in fiction, we can't help loving them. Rogues are the ones who do the dirty work so the hero doesn't get too tarnished along the way. But can they be the heroes themselves? Or does no one want a cad for a glorious leader? If history is written by the victor, is there a temptation to gloss over the more unsavoury elements of our heroes? Can a rogue only be accepted in the New World Order if they give up their roguish ways and redeem themselves via heroic acts? Well, in this episode, we are joined by Ren Hutchings to talk all things rogues, which is very exciting because I love a great rogue. Uh, But before we get stuck into this topic, Ren, would you like to introduce yourself to our readers? Our listeners even. Huh. How long have I been doing this? (laughs) Hi. Um, It's good to be here. Thank you for having me. Um, I'm Ren Hutchings. I am a sci-fi writer. My debut novel, Under Fortunate Stars, came out this year in 2022 from Solaris. Um, It is a space opera about accidental time travel and a history nerd to the rescue and the perils of meeting your heroes and finding out that uh, some of them might not be quite how history described them, perhaps even a little roguish. Um, I am also an assistant editor at Stelliform Press, where I work on speculative fiction with climate themes and uh, environmental stories. So uh, that's what I do. I love science fiction, fantasy, um, speculative fiction of all kinds. And I'm so happy that I get to make that um, such a big part of my life now. So glad to talk to you about it. I really enjoyed Megan's uh, sounding so British when she said rogue. 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 It was very posh. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, how Can I say it more Aussie? Rogue. Have another go. Oh, there we go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're going to start rogues, mate. Yeah? All right. Cool. <laughs> okay, I'm happy now. <laughs> well, since we're talking about rogues, um, I feel like there's, this is an open question to the group. Like, what is so lovable about the rogue character? Oh, I think that... Um, Partly is just how unpredictable they are. I think rogues are often some of the most complicated characters because they sit kind of on that border of um, morally gray sometimes. And I think, um, you know, there's shifting loyalties. You don't necessarily know what they're going to do next. And I think as a, as a writer, they introduce such an immediate plot tension to every scene that they're in because you just don't know what's going to happen. Um, and they often have the best banter. They're very charming. They are, <laughs> they're characters that you want to win, uh, even if perhaps they shouldn't. Yeah, I think the point of charisma is really interesting because 
I don't think it's possible to have a rogue that doesn't have charisma because then they're just kind of a dick. <laughs> Actually, yeah, there's a fine line between dick and <laughs> charming rogue. Yeah, and I think that some rogues walk it really well. I think um, part of what they do is um, inspire trust in people that know that they shouldn't trust them because, you know, they're clever, they're cunning, um, they're chaotic, but they always have the best lines. And um, I think that a rogue on their own is not necessarily very interesting, but as soon as you bring them into conversation with other characters, it's the dynamic that they have with other characters, with the world around them, and with, you know, the structures that they're working in. Um, when you really see them kind of get to work and start to to bounce off their environment and, and do what they do, that they become much more interesting. I kind of feel like they're always the luckiest characters in a book or mm-hmm. a, a film. And you're like, it's more kind of wish fulfillment. I wish I had that amount of luck. I wish when I said, yeah, this totally random thing's going to happen, that it would happen. And even though there's always some skill involved, you know, there's usually quite a lot of sort of blagging it. And it's just, it's almost, I know they're not often the hero. um, And of course, I'm always thinking of Han Solo when we talk about this, but the world still seems to spin around them somehow and just conform. And where everybody else is struggling, they just kind of put their boots off the table and go, it'll be fine. Yeah, I think part of that is that they're very confident. Um, They're confident even in the face of odds that um, are stacked against them. And when you put them into a group dynamic, I think they're often the character that's like, yeah, we're going to give this a try because they will take that risk and they will stick their necks out in a way that seems almost foolhardy. But when it works, when they do pull it off, um, it's just incredibly triumphant and it's a lot of fun. I think Rem will agree with me here, being a a fellow editor, that another fun element of the rogue is that they're usually the catalyst for something, or they can be, you know, enhancing the catalyst. Because a rogue always breaks away from normal order and and the normal way of doing things. And you need someone like that to encourage the hero, heroine, whatever, the group, to go, you know what, actually, yeah, we can do this. Something they wouldn't necessarily have thought and wouldn't be within their ordered universe so the rogue character as a character is there to take risks and to show the others the way and sometimes you know they get overtaken again i'm thinking han solo and luke but if you didn't have han kind of going i'll be fine kid come on then luke would never become the jedi master because he just kind of go oh well maybe not (laughs) yeah i think that they are they are often in opposition to any kind of order or logic sometimes even um because the risk that they take it's it's predicated on this idea that they are going to be lucky. And sometimes you need that character to take that risk or nothing would happen. Um, And sometimes there is no clear or, you know, um, well thought out solution to a problem where you could approach it carefully or thoughtfully. Uh, And that's when you need that rogue character to be like, no, we're just going to do it this way. Um, Maybe it'll work. Maybe it won't. But, it's worth a shot or it's the only shot that we've got. And it's usually um, a rogue type of character who will instigate that type of plan. I feel like before we keep going, we need to step back a little bit and be like, Hey, what is a rogue? What kind of thing are we talking about? Because some people will obviously think rogue 
D&D character, it must be the stealthy one with the knives and the <laughs> and that's not quite what we mean. So, you know, what what do we mean by a rogue or a lovable rogue? Um, I think we mean a character who is charming, confident, unpredictable, um sometimes of uncertain trustworthiness someone who operates at the border of lawfulness, sometimes a little bit more on one side, sometimes a little bit more on the other. Um, I think that that opposition, like the fact that they're in opposition to something, they're outside of something. Maybe they previously were a part of an organization or, you know, a part of a, you know, a certain part of society. And now they are outside of that. So they could be a rebel, um, you know, we've mentioned a smuggler uh, in some sort of uh, way tied to an underworld or to a fringe of the society. And um, I think personality wise, there's certain things that are usually there. Um, the kind of charm and charisma that we talked about and also this sort of um, approach to problems, which is um, maverick. An approach to problems that relies on luck, that relies on sometimes being brazen. As you said, blagging it is a big part of like the rogue catalog. Um, I think that obviously there's a lot of characters that have rogue-ish tendencies and that wouldn't necessarily be defined as a rogue. But there's um, certainly an archetype that's prevalent throughout all types of fiction and that we immediately recognize, you know, there's certain um, tells like sometimes if you start in a gambling scene and you have someone acting like a specific way, you just know instantly that that's going to be the rogue character. And I think part of that is telegraphed to us through familiar tropes um, through these kinds of, of iconic characters that we know and love, but um, there's always more to learn about them because they are very unpredictable. And so I think um, writing or playing a good rogue is is partly telegraphing that um, that mystery about them, the fact that you never quite know exactly what they're going to do, whether they're telling the truth and uh, what they're gonna uh, what they're gonna make of a given situation. I think another thing they must have, is a set of morals, but it doesn't necessarily need to be the set of morals that everybody else has. But it's like the gentleman thief idea, isn't it? Even if you are a, air quotes, bad person, you've got to have certain standards, certain principles. So I think you could even perhaps maybe expand that to a rogue has to have a good soul at the bottom of it. It's no good being a rogue and ultimately being really corrupted. I'm trying to think if there are any examples um, that I can think of bad rogues that come a come a cropper. There must be some, but at the moment I can only think of the good ones. I think the thing about a moral code though is that it it's kind of set by the character themselves. And so the the thing that maybe makes us um get on side with a rogue is sometimes the thing that they're oppo in opposition to, whether that's um, you know, they're against the ruling class of society and they're outside of that so because they're sort of fighting for the underdog or they are even if that underdog is themselves or their small you know band or crew um 
you can understand that their, you know, their their particular moral code is about protecting their own or about, um, you know, even if it's not to protect someone in their circle, it's to go against someone in that um, in that opposing group. So sometimes they'll do something chaotic where it's all about like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm a rogue that's going to cause problems for this particular wealthy and powerful group of people. And that could be your whole, your whole motivation, but they're going to have some kind of internal story that they tell themselves about why they do what they do. And I think that that's where, you know, where that code comes from when you talk about something like a thieves code or, um, you know, maybe they always honor their deals. Maybe they don't. But internally, they have something that's driving them. And that could be something as simple as, I want to cause chaos for this particular group of people. Or it could be something deeper where they've identified something that you know really means a lot to them, or they're out for revenge. Whatever that thing is, they they will build that code around it, and I think you're right that they do need that that one thing that they hold on to and that doesn't change, no matter what kind of mask they're wearing or what kind of role they're playing at the moment. That little nugget of whatever that is is what they hold on to, and that you know what makes them tick. I really liked your idea there that it's almost not necessarily that they have the same moral code as whoever your hero is. But it's almost like the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So even if their moral codes clash, it's like, well, we're still going up against the same bad dude. So, you know, let's at least stick together for a bit. And then as a writer, you get to explore the the journey as, you know, morals change and bend and, and amalgamate and they ultimately become friends, I guess. Yeah, I think you said that really well. It's the fact that the, those alliances that they make, they might be temporary, but if it's something that they've decided to commit themselves to, they're in it for that length of time. And and this is where sometimes you get those rogue arcs where, oh, suddenly they cared a little bit more than they thought, right? They're just like, okay, we're together for this one heist or this one um, you know, mission that we're going on or this one quest. And after that, we go our separate ways. But in the meantime, I think when you when you have characters that are in close proximity and that are working together, they can't help but have an exchange of ideas. So maybe you see, you know, some of that rogue's um, ideas rubbing off on the other characters in their group, or it might go the other way as well, where suddenly they realize that they care about something more than they did going in. And those, and those are really common arcs for rogues when they're joining a group where they don't initially... Uh, have all the same ideas about what they're doing or why. I think it's also interesting to talk about how like they, they walk that line between like unlawfulness and potentially more like morally gray kind of area, because I, I feel like there are some things that a rogue can't do and still come off as okay to a lot of audiences. And I think to me, this is why there is that entire debate about who shot first, Han or Greedo. Because while we can see Han shooting at nameless, faceless stormtroopers, it's just the Empire, that's fine. Like he's sitting and having a conversation with a guy who's basically exactly the same as he is. They have the same job. And we want to love Han. 
So it's like, well, Han kind of shot first because then he's, is he a bad guy? But, ah, and I, I you know, I think that's really interesting because personally I love that, that Han shot first, but that's me. <laughs> yeah, I completely disagree with the choice to wreck on it and make it that he didn't. Or, I mean, if he did, which he did, <laughs> um, I think that there's something complicated about saying, well, he did this thing, therefore he is a bad guy or he can never be a good guy. Um, I think the most interesting characters just like real people have done good things and have done bad things. And there's not this kind of scale, like they have to do this much to redeem themselves or this person can no longer be a hero because they've done this. I think, you know, the whole point about characters, whether they're morally great characters, whether they're rogues or how they came into that heroic role is that having done things that are not heroic doesn't prevent you from doing a heroic thing later. And I don't think this necessarily even has to be couched in something like a redemption arc. It can just be accepted as the whole fabric of a character. There are characters who have done some terrible things, who do also end up doing good things, and or who have done bad things for good reasons or good things for bad reasons. Like Characters and people are a tapestry of all kinds of actions and choices. And I think that's something that I, I actually explore a lot in my book, Under Fortunate Stars, because you you have a group of characters who have not had the, the greatest track record of making good choices and doing good things. Um, and yet some of those characters find out that they're going to be called upon to do uh, some pretty um, dramatically important good things, historically remembered good things. Um in the future and how do you reconcile that and the characters reconciling that is 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 kind of part of their their journey how do you do you deserve to be a hero if you've done certain things like is there a point where that path just isn't open to you or is being a hero um more than just a collection of tick boxes and doing this many good things and this many bad things and more about an entire journey so I said earlier that I couldn't think of any bad villain rogues. And just as we've been talking, someone has come up who I think fits is pretty much Han Solo, but in another setting. And I'd like to put forward Heath Ledger as the Joker in um, Batman Begins, is it? Whichever one it is. The, the Heath Ledger Joker, I think, fits all the same things as Han Solo. He's from the criminal class. He's very smart. He's got lots of um, he's got lots of different ideas, and he's trying to get the money. And he's up against the big bad guys, and he's trying to play them. And he's out for himself to a certain extent, well, to a full extent. But Han Solo is as well. So why is it that Han Solo and the Joker are so alike, and yet one is different? Is it coming back to this idea of morals? Is that what really makes the difference between a good a good rogue and a bad rogue is at the end of the day, they don't kill people. Is it something else? Cause I mean, with his idea of chaos, you've kind of got Heath Ledger with his own set of morals. I'm just trying to figure out where the line is between, as we're saying, a rogue being good and a rogue being bad when you've got two characters that are almost identical. I wonder what anybody's thoughts on that were. Yeah. It's just that isn't the Joker a psychopath, but 
as a character, he shares the same elements. And to be honest, I'm quite happy sitting and watching Heath Ledger. I don't necessarily watch that film to see Christian Bale. I watch that film to see Heath Ledger chewing up the scenery. Yeah, I think I think of you know being a rogue as less something that you are in or less what you are and more how you are um in more of a set of skills a set of tools that you have in order to live your life and achieve your goals so i think that just like being a good fighter or being you know a powerful wizard you can use those tools and those skills for good or for bad or just for chaos. So I think you're right that those characters have a lot in common in terms of the uh, the sort of um, way that they use their skills, but what they apply them to is very different. So I think it's more just um, in the same way that you, you could have a wizard with, with specific powers who was using them in a vastly different way to either try to conquer the world or just make the world burn or just have some fun and go on a quest that's for finding gold right and so i think that you can have characters that share some traits but are also very different and that's where i think that you can have rogue-ish qualities but whether you are a rogue or not um well it can be up to interpretation or to into the uh, up to the context that you're in. Yeah, I mean, if you were in an authoritarian, autocratic, extremely uh, controlled society, um, that you know, someone like Han Solo, someone you know, someone who we wouldn't even maybe even with less roguish qualities, anyone who actually thought outside the box just a little bit would be considered a rogue. So. Well, you could put a character like Han Solo into a contemporary, like put him into a boardroom and he would be, you know, some kind of maverick wheeler dealer business person. Um, and I think you could still apply that. And you, you know, the phrase to go rogue can mean such a wide variety of different things, but generally it means breaking rules. It means going outside the lines of what's expected. Um, there's possibly a little bit of implication that you do this in a kind of shady or underhanded way, but there's always this idea of, of breaking some kind of rule or um, taking a risk. And regardless what kind of setting you put that in, whether it's a sci-fi and fantasy setting or, um, like if you're just putting a rogue into a contemporary drama, you can see those those characteristics at work in different ways. I really like Ren's idea that a rogue is not necessarily a character type. It's sort of a skill set that a character has and how you apply them depends on whether you're a good rogue or a bad rogue. So in the case of uh, the Joker, you apply them for madness and chaos and your own personal satisfaction, and that makes you a bad one. But Han Solo eventually learns to apply them for you know the good of the rebellion and all that kind of thing. So I like this idea that the rogue character has a skill set, and that's what defines them as a, a rogue. And then you're free as a writer to kind of play around with that. So it's a nice day. It's almost D&D. So someone who has never played D&D, I have to say. <laughs> Yeah, I think for for me, a rogue in the D&D sense, in my mind, goes hand in hand with chaotic good. Usually, 
usually, right? And that's maybe just the types of rogue that I enjoy, but I do think someone earlier um, mentioned about them having this like heart of gold at the at the heart of it. And that's just one of our, our kind of um, beloved rogue journeys, right? The idea that there's this person who seems to be out for themselves and they're an unpredictable trickster and they have, um, you know, different tricks up their sleeves. You don't know why they're doing things. You don't know where their loyalties lie. But then ultimately, you know, they do live by this internal code and they are a part of a party, Um they're a part of a group, a crew, and when they're using those skills on your side, it's a good thing to have. I really want to ask about this because um, we're kind of just just beginning to kind of encroach into the territory of rogues as parts of groups. Um, what about this relationship between rogues and the leaders, le- the people who we look to as natural leaders? Um, and I, I say this because I've just remembered that, um, so Charlotte and I were just talking uh, on WhatsApp about female rogues, and I was remembering um, Widrin from Jen Williams' Copper Cat trilogy, which I'm a big fan of. And um, many years ago, I, I'd read this book, I absolutely adored it. And I was posting my review dutifully on Amazon. And I found a review there by someone else who was actively upset by the fact that these this group of people who are mercenaries, they're actually mercenaries who end up saving the world. Um, and, and their beef was the fact that they are mercenaries and that they weren't heroes with hearts of gold. They didn't do it for the love of it. They did it because they were paid. They were here. They saved the world because they were paid. And, and it's like, yeah, maybe in the end it gets to the point where they realize that actually if they don't do something, nobody will. But it, it's, it all starts off as being a job, which is a very roguish thing. Like rogues don't take on a good cause, you know, just out of, you know, not like a paladin, say, or a cleric or somebody, you know, with a, with a strong moral alignment. Like they, you know, they, they live, they are, have one foot in the underworld. So do you think that rogues make good leaders? Can they be leaders of a revolution, say? Or, or do we look to other types of characters to embody a, you know, a, a good ideal? Um, I think this comes back to, you know, the same thing about the rogue being more of a set of skills and a personality type, but it might be that some of them are better at being leaders and some of them prefer not to be and would do better as part of a group where they weren't the leader. But I certainly think that in cases where you need to inspire confidence or inspire trust among a group, and especially when you're doing something that might be a lost cause, like trying to save the world, regardless of that rogue's motivation, they're probably going to have that skill of making people believe that they can pull it off. And that's sometimes just what you need to galvanize a group to convince people to turn around and try one more time. So I think from that point of view, I think they would probably be better used as short-term leaders where they take the lead on this last gasp effort or, you know, if, if there is this mission to save the world, but they might not want the responsibilities that come with being a leader in the long term. And maybe that's an interesting thing if you end up following those characters for longer than, you know, just the length of that story and go into what happens after. 
which often in SFF, we don't really get that. The story just ends there. But what happens after the world is saved? And that's where I think, you know, it would be interesting to see what happens. How does that rogue deal with the fact that they've now saved the world? They've now been made into a leader. Yeah, I think there's a lot of space to explore there in terms of a character story. But as a writer, I think you're definitely um, very well pleased to to have a rogue character be the one that gives that speech or that pep talk and that really um, convinces people to do it, even if they don't believe it themselves, because that that is what they do. That's really a big part of their skill as a rogue. Okay, well, I would call Captain Kirk a rogue. And he's also very inspiring. And he we, we get him, like, across quite a lot of <laughs> time, uh, including in, in, the, uh, in the films. Like, I... But the thing is, he's just so charismatic, regardless of the girdle. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> as his shirt gets ripped off. But he's, I don't know, I think for me, part of the the rogue as a leader comes down to this, as you say, like in, inspiring trust in them. And I think this, like there's a really interesting thing that I see personally with rogue characters, especially if they're in sort of a leadership position like Kirk or like Malcolm Reynolds in Firefly or even Widron in the Copper Cat trilogy, like they often have someone in the group who has been with them for a long time and trusts them through thick and thin, who can kind of, you know, do that exasperated, like, oh my God, yes, I know what you're like. And you just like, just get on with it. Um, but it's kind of, not quite like this the straight man to the <laughs> the comedy or whatever but there's a bit where if you've got another character who has total faith in them it kind of endears others to them and especially like a reader or a viewer we think well they can't be all bad or like they can't be just you know, never reliable because clearly this they've stuck by this person. You know, at the end of the day, Han Solo saved Chewbacca's life and that's why Chewbacca dedicated his life to him. So I think that's a really interesting aspect of the rogue that we haven't really touched on, this this idea where you have kind of the there's like almost life partner, a soulmate alongside yeah. <laughs> the rogue. Yeah, I think that you've got to balance that kind of impetuousness versus reason character. And that's a fun character dynamic, um, full stop. When you have one character that's very, very impulsive, um, very ready to rush into danger. And then you have another character who kind of always has their back, but also is that exasperated voice. Like, are, are you sure? Why are we doing this again? Wait, hang on a second. Um, so in terms of why, why you need that relationship. I think also it depends whether you are working in a visual medium like film or TV or whether you are writing because you have a different ability to um, explain the rogue's motivation to the audience. In a movie, if you just, you see a rogue and they're sitting at a table kind of thinking something, you don't know what they're thinking or what they're doing. So you kind of need that other person to explain their plan 
too as well. So I think it helps you understand like what their thought process is, why they're doing this, in addition to giving you that um that endearing relationship of the person that's just being with them, this sometimes long-suffering sidekick who is just very, very tired of doing this sometimes, but is totally willing to get behind them and pull them out of trouble even. Um, but in a book, I think it's also really interesting if you have a POV character who is um, that sidekick or the friend uh, to actually see the rogue through someone else's eyes uh, and sometimes see things that they might not even realize about themselves. Like you say, you know, what they're really like, that they are someone who's loyal or caring or has done things even if they're a person that doesn't really admit that they do them, um, it gives you just another another lens to see them with. So I think it can really, really help um, to explain their motivation and also to give like a fuller picture of them as a character than if you only saw their actions uh, or only saw their actions through the eyes of someone that doesn't know them very well. I just, I really love that. Like seeing, you know, the, the trope that I really love is just time and time again, like, a rogue character going like, oh well, I'm I'm just an asshole, or like I don't I don't care about anyone, and then be like, oh no, except for like my best friend in the world who I would never hurt ever ever ever. Um, I I just like that as a trope because <laughs> it's comforting, it's objectively wonderful. Yes, <laughs> I was just thinking about the rogue as the hero character and also having sidekicks. And it put me in mind of Indiana Jones, which I know Lucy described as rogue light, but I think he's got the same idea of the skill sets and he's got the, the sidekick. He always has a sidekick. Like Megan says, you have more confidence in Indiana Jones when he brings out all of these people from the past he used to work with that all respect him. And they're like, Oh yeah, cool. We'll, we'll follow you on a, a blazing motorbike through that, you know, ring of, of madmen who are trying to stab us with spears because I trust you'll be all right. Um, but it also made me think about the rogue as a leader that he, in a weird way, he is the hero and he is the leader, but at the end of it, he just goes back into obscurity. He ta- he wins everything. He saves the world. He gets the Ark of the Covenant and it goes into a dusty warehouse and he goes back into being a professor again. And I just think that's really interesting because like I say, a lot of the rogues that we think of tend to be sidekick characters. And Indiana Jones is a hero rogue, but he only gets that way and then he gets put back in his box at the end. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> rogue light. <laughs> exactly. But it's just such a fascinating idea that, you know, you can't be a rogue and a hero. I mean, obviously Captain Kirk being the exception because, I mean, Captain Kirk's the exception to everything fabulous. But he, I just like it. I just think it's such an interesting idea. Yeah, I think that ties in, though, with the um, the temporary leader or the temporary part of, you know, this exciting adventure where um, some characters, regardless of where they came from, the adventure part of their story is something temporary. And it's not necessarily something that they want to grow into permanently. They They do the adventure. And then after that, they're very happy to go back to how they were living their life before. And that's one type of character journey. Uh, But then there's another type where maybe they learn something more about themselves and they decide that they want to do something completely different or they remain the leader. You know, Mal Reynolds is an interesting one because he is a leader, but he's he's a leader of a very small group of people who's essentially like his little family. Those are his people. I don't think, you know, that he's decided that these are the people that he cares about. And this is, you know, I think being the leader of a small crew is really different to like 
you know, being the the leader of an entire rebellion. (laughs) But then sometimes that character is called upon to do that or to do bigger things and to participate in things. But where are they happiest? Like where, where are they um, most fully in their character? And do you feel like, you know, I, I'm, I keep coming back to this idea of what happens after the big adventure is over, particularly for very epic sci-fi and fantasy type of stories. And I, I think that's something that I would really like to write something on in the future. Like what happens after all of that has happened? Um, you have these characters that have had incredible journeys and then that ends. And where do they go to? I think, I mean, Star Wars tried to um, examine that a little bit in various ways because you have the different um, depending where you're looking at the books or at the later films about, you know, what did Han Solo do after all of that? Where did he end up and how does he keep getting called back into, you know, the thick of the adventure, but how did he really want to live his life compared to, you know, where he was pulled to by, by events in his life that were sometimes largely out of his control that just happened to him or happened at him. I have to say that I love the um, Star Wars books where they wrote that. I think it was it Timothy Zahn. Um, I loved all of his books when they did yes. exactly that and they kept drawing him back in. Yeah, oh, those were my my teenage years. So many happy memories. Mine too. Yeah, I think that's <laughs> super, super interesting. I actually, I find those kind of stories sometimes even more interesting, like the side things, like what happens in between when nothing's currently going on, no one's currently in peril. Where where do those characters go? Where do those relationships go? And what do they do with those skills that they learned during those times? Well, if Star Trek Next Generation taught us anything, it involves Riker in a really bad outfit on some sort of shore leave and some weird planet romancing a a stranger alien. So (laughs) that's what I think they get up to. I think you just described Kirk's ending as well, to be honest. Okay, so it falls to me to ask the traditional breaking the glass slipper gender question um because we've been talking a lot about rogues uh most of the rogues we've mentioned yeah we have we have mentioned widrin um but they have mostly been uh, male like mal reynolds captain kirk and solo but women in similar positions women you know in in the especially we're talking about groups of heroes they tend to be given straight role they're harder they've they've been forced to become uh you know maybe like a rogue one foot in the criminal underworld you know because this is a man's world so i want to ask what does a female roguish leader look like and maybe not just a leader we can just go for rogues but particularly it just it it makes me think of uh mj kun's among thieves that i read uh earlier this year might have been last year now because the years are all blurred together in the time of covid um but yeah i really liked that book because um she's she's obviously the leader of a group of misfits but it's it's not quite as usual to find um a female character um, leading a group who is absolutely a rogue, uh, hands down, leading a group of um, misfits. Well, I don't think that, you know, we don't have to look very far to kind of figure out why we haven't really seen a lot of characters who aren't men in these types of roles, because I think roles like the rogue are inherently transgressive positions. Um, they are placed in opposition to authority. They are pushing against expectations and norms. And 
whilst I think that historically a lot of male characters have been portrayed positively in doing that, um, it's a lot more difficult for characters who aren't men to do that because they're facing this additional barrier. They're not just pushing against society or against, um, you know, outside of the lines of what's expected of them societally, but they have the additional transgressive um, element because of their gender. Um, Because historically, this is exactly what people who weren't men were told not to do, to push against authority, to break rules. And whilst we could see male characters seeming cool and fun doing that, it still was a space that wasn't as accessible um, to women. It wasn't as accessible to any characters who were not male. And I think even now, although we're seeing that change in the real world, it's still not easy. And so I think that's why we haven't seen that happen. But as we're seeing, um, as we're seeing some of those things change, hopefully in the real world, it's easier to imagine um, more different kinds of characters in those roles. And I think that ultimately um, a rogue, regardless of their gender, is going to have these same characteristics. They're going to use them the same way and hopefully we'll be able to um, see them the same way. There's been a few examples recently, I think, um, like the captain from Space Sweepers, who's like a beautiful example of a roguish archetype who is a female character. And she has that similar kind of journey where she um, kind of became this and salvager pirate type of character after um, breaking away from the company that she was working for originally because she didn't like what they were doing. Um, the way that she's dressed, the way that she acts, the way she's presented is just um, very, very obviously and classically a rogue type of character. Um, and I think like the fact that's a, that she's a female character isn't really um, addressed in the sense that, that, the story doesn't focus on that. It just gives us the character. Um, I think another kind of roguish leader is uh, Seven in the recent seasons of Picard. I think that that is an, another character who came from a background where um, she was very much part of a mold and breaking out of that. And now we see her as this sort of a vigilante and, and a leader in that group. Uh, who's looking out for um, other people in her sector, but very much in a way that's outside of the lines and outside of the law. And uh, that's a character journey that she certainly was not a rogue type of character when she was initially introduced in the series, but she has become one. So she's taken on some of those, um, some of those qualities. Anyone played Dragon Age 2? No. Okay, no, this is totally for listeners then, because Dragon <laughs> Age 2, um, so the main protagonist of that is Hawk, and you can play as male Hawk or female Hawk, and I always play as female Hawk, and then you can also pick, um, depending on your dialogue options and how you deal with situations, you can play as kind of like good and I use this term very loosely, like good hawk, um, who's generally virtuous and says nice things. You can play as deeply sarcastic 
hawk, um, which is the one I always play. And then you can play also as like abusive hawk, who's just, you know, pretty much rude in every situation. And the, the this middle ground where I always play like deeply sarcastic hawk, I always play hawk as a rogue. And like you, because you can play this character as a male or a female, um, because that's how the game mechanics work. It, it doesn't, it's really great because it doesn't kind of, it gives the same backstory to both whether you're a male or a female. And I think it's really, it, you know, there's something really kind of progressive about that. And it gets us away from thinking about, oh, well, if this character is a rogue and they're a woman, they must, they must have different reasons for why they are like this. You know, their backstory has shaped them. You know, they've lost someone at an early age. Um, and I just like the fact that, you know, something, this sort of media can offer us a chance to kind of escape that sort of gendered thinking. Mm -hmm. I think in speculative fiction, too, especially if you're writing in secondary worlds or you're writing worlds that aren't necessarily um, based on our real world on Earth, then it's really up to you. You are writing um, your societies maybe with different types of gender roles or where gender roles just aren't as much of a thing as they are in our world. Uh, but I think that something that we just have to keep in mind as creators is that regardless of how well you set out those rules in your world and how much you explain like, oh, it's not, you know, this world isn't like our world, the readers are still in our world. So you're always going to have readers interpreting your characters through that lens that we all have. You know, we all have grown up in this society that is predominantly a patriarchal society. We've been internalizing certain biases about characters, about gender roles, our whole lives. And so there's always going to be a different interpretation of a character who is roguelike or who is transgressive if that character is male or if they're not a man. And that's something that there's only so much that you can do about I mean, you can't really crawl into readers' heads and change how they're going to see a character. And there's always going to be a certain group of people that will not accept or will not resonate with a character um, of a certain archetype who is not a man. But your story just isn't for those people. So I think there's a point where you just have to say, um, maybe not every story is for every reader. But if you're... If you're writing a character, you don't necessarily have to change anything about how you would have written them if in your world that wouldn't have mattered, if that makes sense. But you can't take away the fact that the person reading it might still um, superimpose some of that bias that they have from the real world onto the character and read them differently. So that's something to just... Um, be conscious about, I think, as you're creating and to make sure that you do as much as possible in universe and in the world um, to kind of buffer that and to um, to give those characters the space to be who they are in the world that they're in on your page. There's something that I just, um, I'm going to mention one thing that I, I had in mind just as I was thinking about this. Um, in how we think about gendering characters when we're writing. So there is a scene um, in my book where a female character breaks up a fight. Uh, she comes in and she 
she takes down a character who is actually physically a lot larger than her with a, a martial arts hold, and she kind of pins him to the ground, and she she breaks up the fight. And I used to have. Um, like an explanation in there explaining, you know, that she has a little piece of her backstory that used to be um, in the story, but isn't anymore about how um, she had learned this martial art when she was a child. And I realized that that wasn't in there anymore. And I thought, oh, is someone going to wonder, like, how come she was able to overcome this this man who's much larger than her. But I ended up taking that explanation out because I feel like if you had a male hero that came and broke up a fight, I wouldn't have felt the need to explain why or to tell people like, oh, this is where she learned the martial art. This is why she knows. Like it could just be something that someone knows. And I think that I very consciously took that explanation out and I was just like, well, she did it. It's something that she did. I don't need to justify or explain why a female character was able to do something. And if somebody, you know, cannot suspend their disbelief or can't believe that that could happen, that's them problem. Um, so I think there's little things that we internalize where we, we think about the reader and we think, oh, I, I have to explain this. Like someone's not going to want um, they're not just going to accept that a female character could be this strong or that you know, could do this, but why not? So yeah, that's just a a very small experience that I had among others when I was thinking about um, how we encode these things into the things that we write and and how much we internalize some of these um, ideas about what a character can or can't do that really don't don't need to be there. Yeah, it's it's just... Yeah, this is something that we've talked about a lot <laughs> on the podcast over the years. Um, I wanted to just pick up on something you said earlier about Seven of Nine um, and her role in Picard because I thought you made a really interesting point that I'd not really thought about in that she's kind of, I suppose, a lot of rogue characters you kind of see becoming less roguish as they wear on, like they become a little bit more law-abiding, a little less chaotic, and somehow it's seen as, you know, the good thing or the right path for them. Um, But Seven has gone from someone who is a rule follower in the absolute extreme to someone yeah, being very flexible with rules and laws. And yeah, it's it's just interesting because I I, I can't really think of, of many character progressions that are like that, which, yeah. I don't know if I had anything to say other than just like that it was a really good point and I'm, I'm fascinated by that yeah. now. I think that's part of what makes her journey so extremely interesting too, because, you know, where, where she ended up originally, she very much, you know, she was taken as very young by the Borg. And so she didn't have a choice in that, but maybe she ended up growing into the person that she would have been if it wasn't for that. Or maybe the experiences she had, her whole life experiences were building up to that. So we don't really know, you know, what, what someone would have been like if they'd have had different adventures. But we can see how 
all of the adventures they've had have led them up to this point. And I think that's that's part of the joy of spending a longer time with characters, whether it's over a long running series of of books or a TV show, or whether it's a you know coming back to them again um, in a sequel that's set long after. Just seeing um, that kind of longer term development of a character and and seeing them come into these different phases of their life. Um, and, and a kind of acquire these different dimensions. So I think that she's a fascinating character. I really, really loved where they took her in in the recent season. And like I hope we get to see more of her. I absolutely concur. Uh, more Seven of Nine, always. Uh, she is fantastic. Um, but we have been <laughs> talking for quite some time, so we should wrap it up. But thank you so, so much for talking to us about all things Rogue. And I mean, so obviously the reason I sort of chose this theme to do for tonight with you um, was because you have a lovely roguish character in <laughs> Underfortunate Stars, which uh, I have to admit actually got me through um, when I was very ill with COVID. I was reading this and it it, uh, it did always make me chuckle. So thank you for that. Um, <laughs> but thank Thank you you. (laughs) and thank you so much for joining us it's been a pleasure to have you thank you so much for having me I just um I do want to just shout out a quick recommendation of a couple of books that do have female rogues in them that yes. came out recently. If Please do. Rocks. Okay. Um this year there's a um a sci-fi debut by Ciel Pierlo. It is called Bluebird. It has an absolutely wonderful roguish main character. Um a gunslinger who left her faction and um, is badass, sassy, has pretty much all of the rogue boxes ticked, and it's just so, so much fun. So check that out. And also um, City of Shattered Light, which is actually by my critique partner, Claire Wynn, um, has a wonderful rogue character, Riven, who is uh, the leader of her little crew, and she lives on a very dangerous kind of um, underworld space moon um, that's governed by a matriarchy. And she's trying to climb her way up. So I think that's a really interesting example of um, placing a rogue type character into a world where there is a power structure that would um, allow her to access power with her gender, um, but also the the challenges she faces are other things. So the, um, you know, the things that she has to overcome are, um, are not to do with her gender, um, but there's other things that stand in her way to getting that power. So that's kind of what I was talking about earlier with, um, you know, creating worlds where the power structures work a little bit differently and creating the paths for, um, characters to have different problems that they have to overcome besides how am I going to access power without being a man? Awesome. Those are excellent, but I have to give a shout out for your book because obviously listeners will be aware that Megan and I very rarely like the same book. Um, and I really enjoyed your book as well. And I have to oh, say, thank you so much. If anyone is going to write a story arc of what happens to the rogue after their current story arc is finished, I would like to see <laughs> what happens to yours if you ever feel like writing it. Well, thank you so much. I will uh, let you know. Breaking the Glass Slipper is written and produced by Megan Lee, Charlotte Bond, and Lucy Hounsom. 
Please help us spread the word. Subscribe and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform. We want to hear from you. Let us know what you would like to hear on the next episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper.